this computer. All right. So my attempts to insert the sound effects and whatnot, utter failure because Zoom is garbage. <laughs> uh, so instead, here's the intro. Michael Brooks, Chief Engineer Fred Perkins, and hosted by me, Anthony Simino. For over 50 years, the Center for Auto Safety has worked to make cars safer. Okay, right. so you did some variation of Jeopardy, and uh, Michael did some variation of the Beach Boys. What was that? I don't even remember what that song was, but well, I think we should go for more of an Inspector Gadget theme. Okay, I'll I'll work on that for not this week, but maybe uh, in the future. And and speaking of uh, careers that we should kill off, Waymo has killed off its autonomous trucking program. Um, this was surprising because uh, Waymo, of all the autonomous vehicle companies, was one that were more open, not saying as open as we want them to be, but they're fairly open. And the big thing around autonomous driving AVs seem to be, hey, this will really make sense and work for the trucking industry, for long haul trucking, because truckers, you know, they complained, it became a safety thing. And they're like, hey, we should only work eight hours a day instead of 20 hours a day and doing a lot of crank. Um, But now, and so they've promise with avs was hey we'll have computers drive these cars so these guys can just sit in the cabin and do a lot of crank um no it's i don't, I don't know if that's well, maybe true they, that's maybe terrible they, <laughs> maybe they googled highway safety they they could have so but any yeah so waymo what what happened here because we thought this was going to be you know kind of their 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 breakthrough product but no i don't know i mean there's tremendous jeopardy associated with control of these uh highway trucks regardless of how they're being driven there's just a hell of a lot of energy in them and tremendous potential for damage to people and to property um so we can only speculate as to why they pulled the plug on it but i'm hoping that they pulled the plug on it because it's just not a, a good idea just a you know for a while it was a bad idea whose time seemed to have come but Maybe now it's a bad idea whose time has come and gone. Well, it seemed like they were going to have safety drivers in these cars at least. So I kind of liked it vaguely. You know, they say that refocusing on their um, ride share business, I, you know, I'm sure they're facing some increased competition there of late from crews pushing out to new cities and other things. And maybe they, you know, maybe they see that as their first real crack at profitability. There are a lot of companies out there that are also testing um autonomous technology on heavy trucks like aurora and others who are i think there was one company that's already about to deploy between houston and dallas with uh, i believe it was no safety driver i can't remember if it was about a month or two ago we talked about it but there's a lot of competition there although you know it, you would think that if your vehicle is capable of driving safely in an urban environment where there are um, so many different hazards and things to that you have to recognize that operating, you know, primarily on interstate highways and, and, and heavy trucks, you know, to get packages and parcels and freight from one, you know, main hub to another without going into the cities for the actual deliveries. You know, you would think that would probably work before 
before we see any other real forms of autonomy hitting the streets with all the complications that are involved on uh, with pedestrians and urban environments. So that was always kind of what the industry was going for. It's a little surprising to me that they pulled out, but it could be because they, you know, maybe they don't want to take on the risks that Fred's discussing. Maybe they really need to put all their chips into competing with crews or maybe they just don't see any real profitability uh in 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 the trucking autonomy in the future at least for them with all the competition that's out there i don't know but um it's definitely a surprise that they're getting out of that because their part of their project was to build you know a an overall waymo driver um that could then be licensed to other companies uh who were building autonomous technology into their vehicles so you would think they would want to do the same thing that would apply to you know heavy trucks and every other vehicle on the road but apparently not or it could just be very simple that it's a google product and google randomly cancels products all the yes. time yeah so that's my biggest concern with waymo it's like one day i'm gonna get inside a waymo and halfway through the ride google will cancel the service and I'm like, uh, 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 I mean, that might be better than it just dropping me off at a random location saying, yeah, you've arrived. One of the, uh, one of the th other things I believe that was mentioned was that the logistics of carrying freight and everything involved there is a little too much to deal with uh, for Waymo. And that that's one other reason that they just want to focus on the robo taxis for now. Wait, so you're telling me a bunch of tech bros said, hey, I see a thing. It must be easy to solve because I see a thing. And I, if I've seen a thing, it must be easy. And then they get into it and they're like, holy shit, this is really complicated. But let's keep telling everybody it's easy <laughs> while we sell it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because uh, remember, boys and girls, computers are horrible drivers. Um, Speaking of horribleness, so... Before I started this podcast with you guys, back when I was a naive young man, I thought self-driving cars, I was like, this sounds amazing. I, I told my my son when he was 10, I was like, you won't even have to learn how to drive a car. Unfortunately, he's taken that a little too hard because he's 18. He doesn't have a driver's license. He lives in New York City. Uh, but part of that was, you know, Tesla. Tesla had a big hype. And one of the most impressive things I thought about Tesla and still up until about a week ago was that. Tesla's battery performance seemed to be so much better than everybody else. Like I couldn't understand it. They're claiming 400 mile ranges and they're claiming all of the stuff. And, uh, you know, I should have known better. It was all lies, all lies. <laughs> Unbelievable. Um, and so part of this is the, their owners have realized, wait a second, none of this is happening. So Tesla not to. You know, not to do the right thing and say, oops, instead they created in mid 2022, Tesla started routing range complaints to a quote unquote diversion team that fielded up to 2000 cases a week and was expected to close about 750 cases a week. Now, the diversion team, you'd call up and say, hey, my car is supposed to get 400 miles of range. It's only getting 280, just like every other EV company out there. And Tesla's diversion team would say, you're wrong. You're driving incorrectly. You're a dummy. Why, why don't you upgrade to full self-driving? Because you're a dummy, so you've already paid for this. Let's get more money out of you, dummy, dummy. Case closed. Well, they were, they were also, you know, remotely 
looking at each customer's vehicles at one point and then telling them, oh, we've checked it out. You know, you don't even need to come in for the appointment. Everything's fine. Apparently, they stopped even doing that. They just started canceling appointments. And that just shows that they knew that their claims were exaggerated about range. They knew it was bullshit and they were just trying to limit their interaction with customers who figured it out. I mean, it's, you know, one more exaggeration from the king of exaggerations when it comes to auto automobile um, capabilities. See, see, if I'm an EV manufacturer, if I'm competing with them, or I'm a battery manufacturer competing with them, how are they not realizing, wait a second, these guys are doing some next level stuff that we don't think is possible. How come these guys weren't calling BS well, they five should be years called, ago? You know, the, the industry is so scared of Tesla. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've had conversations with people around the industry who, who are just like, why aren't they talking about full self-driving and what a, what a crock it is? Why is Why aren't more industry actors doing that? And, you know, it's mind-boggling to me that, you know, you start to see people like Ford, Farley, and Kyle at Cruise even start to mimic Musk and Tesla and some of the things that have gone on there um, as far as exaggerating claims about their vehicles and other things like that. So it's it's weird to me that they're not willing to point, just straight up point it out and say, you know, they're lying to you. Here's what their vehicles actually can expect. Um you know, and reading about this, you know, it reminds me, you know, of, you know, if at Volkswagen a few years back when they were faking emissions testing, they basically designed software that would tell the tell your emissions check that everything was fine and dandy, even though it wasn't. This is very similar to that. You know, some of those Volkswagen executives went to jail. Um, in this case, though, Tesla's just lying to its owners um, and not to the government. So there probably is no criminal or civil penalties that can be expected. But good Lord, why would you, you know, why would you willing, willingly buy a product whose features are exaggerated to the point now where you can't believe anything that the company says? I'm sure that somebody who's been stranded in the middle of the wilderness with a dead battery would, would be talking to a lawyer by now about the range claimed on the Teslas. I, I'm surprised that hasn't happened, or I don't know of anything. I, I think it has. For those of you who have the audio-only version of this podcast, Fred's background right now is in the middle of the wilderness. So perhaps uh, Fred is a secret Tesla owner. <laughs> <laughs> and he's uh lost in the wilderness now now fred now this is this is you have recently have a patent on a bird feeder i'm suggesting that you make a claim that your bird feeder will will expel seeds in such a way that birds will fly, fly much farther than your competition Apparently yeah you i get i get great mileage on that <laughs> on the birds they they like it very much Okay, but seriously, so Michael, with this, the they have to provide, or the EPA provides a range estimate. How is that done? That it's so far off because it was I think it was in this Ars Technica article we're linking to. Uh, the car testers at Edmund Edmonds reported that four of the six Teslas tested fell short of the vehicle's EPA range, um, EPA estimates. Now, yeah. is that just a made up number? Well, the EP estimates are always a little off. Um, I think, and I think we'll even discuss it under the fuel economy um, rules later. Where it, what you're seeing on the EPA site, usually vehicles lose about twenty percent of that in actuality. So, 
the range that manufacturers provide to the EPA are basically under ideal conditions. And, you know, if we, we've talked before about how many things can affect how far you can go on an EV, like whether you have your heat on, how cold it is outside, how hot it is is outside. You know, anything you're using in the vehicle that uses electric power can impact how far your vehicle is going to be able to go. So that's really important to um to the entire conversation is that the EPA and the EPA figures really, when you break it down, can't be trusted. And you ha you have to, as a consumer in your head, say, oh, well, I'm not going to quite get as much as we would under those perfect conditions. And at the same time, you know, you need an accurate gauge. The range of your vehicle is so important to where you're going to stop and recharge if you're on a trip or, or, or any number of things. So you have to have an accurate gauge of your range. Um, and that's what the owners aren't being provided here. They're essentially not being given accurate information at the start of their trip. So there is value in the EPA ratings, uh, which is a way of comparing uh, different vehicles. The presumption is that the different vehicles have similar response to fuel inputs and temperature and all those kind of things. The absolute value of the mileage is something you're unlikely to ever repeat with your own vehicle. But by comparing the ratings in different vehicles, you can tell which are better and which are worse. The test was never designed to consider things that are very heavily dependent upon the ambient temperature. All right, so you don't have a summer rating and a winter rating for your mileage on your conventional vehicle, but that really needs to be included in the ratings for electric vehicles because they are so heavily dependent on the ambient temperature. Well, it also is helpful if you're they're providing a, an honest estimate, whereas it seems like Teslas, they've just um, kind of uh, put their finger on the scale with in terms of their estimate. So what well, it was odd. They designed an algorithm that basically when you were – when you had more than 50% of your range left, it was uh, inflating your range. And then once you got down to about 50%, it began to report more accurate numbers. So you, you might have actually figured out that you were going to run out of power before you did, but you didn't feel nearly as confident as you did at the start of your trip. I feel that about my fuel gauge sometimes. The first half of the tank, it seems yeah. like that lasts forever. You get to the second half of the tank, I'm like, what happened? I think it's mm. the same on, on, on my VW Jetta right now when, when you're on a trip. I feel like I've gotten about two-thirds of the way through a tank, but it's still showing half. Right. Hey, that'd be a good subject for a future Tau. Not today's Tau, but we'll have Fred take apart a fuel tank, fuel gauge, and fuel monitor. Anyway, uh, speaking of, uh, let's let's just go right into this, uh, the cafe standards we're talking about. NHTSA is targeting a new... Uh, they're proposing new cafe rules, which is the cafe. Um, Corporate average fuel economy. <laughs> there you go. So uh, trucks and SUVs, they're big sellers in this uh, land of uh, the Big Mac and the Whopper. Uh, and uh, they really drag down uh, the corporate average fuel economy and so the biden administration and nitsa um is really pushing for a four percent per year increase from 2027 to 2020 to 2032 
for aimed at trucks and SUVs. These are light trucks, not, um, you know, 18 wheelers. And from this Jalopnik article, if automakers could indeed achieve the fuel economy gains outlined by the proposal, then the you nationwide for about three seconds there. So you may want to go back and restart. Oh, oh look at that. Right, okay, you started, and so this proposal, I believe, is where you stop. Uh, okay, let's just yeah, okay. So if automakers could indeed achieve the fuel economy gains outlined by the proposal, then the nationwide average of the U.S. fleet would be 58 miles per gallon by 2032. But that's highly unlikely to happen for a number of reasons, not the least of which the country regularly fails this, but car makers only have to pay civil penalties for this, um, for not doing it. And the civil penalties are like a rounding errors. Isn't that right? Uh, there were was, there was some recent ones that are... Uh put out in june of this year on uh to general motors and stellantis slash chrysler slash whatever they call themselves this year and stellantis i believe was fined i think it was 230 somewhere in there million dollars and gm had to pay 130 million or so because of their i think it was 2016 and 17 models so they're paying these fines years after the fact um, but yeah, some automakers, they, they also have the option to use credits. Um, we know that Tesla sells a lot of credits and that's, that really helps them achieve profit, profitability because it's difficult to do that right now, just on EV sales alone for anyone, as we saw with Ford this week also. So there's, there's a lot of many, the, the, the chance that the actual fuel economy average in America for vehicles made in 2032 is going to be 58 miles per gallon is very low. Um, even if it's the, the one we're talking about on the EPA website, that's the, you know, kind of the highest possible expected. You still have to remove about 20% of that for ICE vehicles if you want to figure out what your actual day to day mileage is going to be. So. This is, you know, I like this proposal because it's pushing SUVs and trucks to be more fuel efficient. I don't know if I like that, if it means that more SUVs and trucks are going to be throwing 3,000, 2,000 pound batteries onto their weight. Um, we don't think that's a good thing. So, you know, I, I, I do like the fact that more trucks are considering using hybrid motors and other things that can that can get them better fuel economy without adding significant weight. Um, but there's still, as we see, a lot going on in this area as electric vehicles continue to roll out and as we see battery improvements made. So how, do, how does this work? This is just a proposal. So right. NHTSA comes out with this proposal, and who are they proposing it to? To Congress? To the automakers? They're proposing a rulemaking that basically sets the standards for 20, 2027 to 2032. Um, and then that goes through a long comment process. These are the, the biggest dockets on NHTSA's website. There are just reams of data and information submitted on every possible thing that cars do to essentially show that you know automakers can meet these standards that these standards are necessary to protect the environment and a lot of other things so there's a long process ahead here um the automakers have already come out predictably and and said you know these this is impossible blah 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 um but the fact is they've been sitting on their hands for years and and fighting this tooth and nail they even had the trump administration reverse the fuel economy rules for a while until um the next administration came in and did a reverse reverse so 
it's going to be a, a, you know a year a year or years long process possibly even lawsuits back and forth i mean we've seen all this before basically every time the standards are increased um the industry fights back lame industry uh california so uh, long-time listeners of the show or short-time listeners of the show i'm sure you've already subscribed and gone to autosafety.org and donated to all your friends and maybe you've told your friends after you've donated and subscribed about how great this is and maybe you've told them about hey there was an issue a little while ago about tesla employees sharing photos and and video inside teslas uh, in your private Tesla that's not getting 400 miles of range with with uh, their friends and family. I'm like, hey, look at this guy picking his nose. Look at this one. They're not picking their nose. I don't know what that is. Uh, so California has realized, wait, cars are just big computers that have no privacy regulations. They're full of cameras and microphones and all sorts of stuff that they're collecting lots of data inside and outside the car. And it's the wild, wild west, but with even less respect. And so now California legislators are saying, wait a second, we should have some sort of privacy policies in place. And we think it's about time. So this this is part of the um, California Privacy Protection Agency. And that is an agency that was established about two years ago. And they didn't have any authority to do anything until July 1st of 2023. So this is the very first thing they've chosen to do right um they just got their enforcement powers what's the first thing we need to take up cars because they are basically an open box for anybody that wants to go in and figure out what you've been doing and you know there's a lot of problems with manufacturers sucking up this data and selling it off because we know data is uh very important in our world these days and the you know, the industry's response to to this is basically saying, oh, well, we're all good. We commit to the principles that were put out by the Alliance for Automotive Innovation, which basically put out a list of guidelines that nobody has to adopt um, that can be completely ignored and that are already overly favorable to auto manufacturers who want to sell consumer data over the co- consumers who want to protect their privacy. So, there's a real need for government authorities to step in here and not just on the state level, but also on the federal level to ensure that consumers have protections from things like what went on at Tesla. There also have been a couple other manufacturers. I believe Ford has been implicated in, in, in one incident or two in California. Um, so it, this is something that we think needs to be locked down and part of future NHTSA rulemaking on uh, electronics just to ensure that consumer privacy isn't threatened by, you know, decisions made in Silicon Valley. Michael, the Alliance for Automotive Innovation, that's a consumer group that's dedicated to uh, safety of motor vehicles, right? Or or wait, is that us? I'm I'm confused. (laughs) No, no, no. They are a uh, basically a membership group of all the major manufacturers. Um, So they're essentially promote the manufacturer line i'm sure we talked about them a lot in the last two weeks as we covered all of the av myths that are being floated through congress oh okay so they're kind of a bizarro version of the center for auto safety (laughs) yeah i would i I would say that yeah bizarro in terms of superman and and the justice league the, the opposite yeah yeah okay thank you 
Now, uh, Fred, we covered them when we covered the hearings. It was like a week or two ago. You should also, I mean, you're part of the show. You should also listen to it. But more importantly than that, Michael, can you say the word July again? July. <laughs> oh, I love that Southern thing there. <laughs> <laughs> um e-bikes about something offline anthony <laughs> <laughs> no oh, wait a second what uh okay Slap so that let's... boy upside the head that's another southern expression <laughs> oh bless my little heart um e-bike safety so this this is good so a friend of mine they recently moved to a, a farther away neighborhood from me uh and he's like hey how do i come visit you and i'm like uh you know get a bike and he's like oh good point city bikes they have uh i'll get the electric city bikes and now in new york uh there's a lot of fires happening in apartment buildings because people are getting i guess cheap e-bikes and the batteries go on fire but that's not what we're going to talk about today instead we're going to talk about e-bikes and safety and 16 year olds going out there um and unfortunately getting injured there's a new york times article we'll link to and the problem is that these e-bikes can go 20 miles per hour and kids take them out onto roads that where the traffic's moving at 50 miles per hour. So the bikes are too fast for the sidewalk, but too slow for regular traffic. Uh, and the surprising thing to me is there's no regulations around this. They're treated as just like a normal bicycle with no engine. And uh, I, I don't understand how these are different from a moped. From when I was a kid, I remember, you know, oh, the cool kid got a moped, which is essentially a bicycle with an engine in it. And an e-bike to me sounds like a bicycle with an engine in it. And a moped, you have to go to the DMV to get a license. All yeah. right. So there's there's a little <laughs> sophistication here. There's different classes of e-bikes. So class one e-bike is like the one I've got, which requires you to pedal. So it's a boost when you're pedaling. Okay, so there's no throttle associated with it. It's that's, just it's just a boost when you're pedaling. That's just no, like what they do with the Tour de France when they're going uphill, right? Yeah, except without the <laughs> except without the motor. Yeah, the, I find the electric motor is really helpful when I'm going up a hill. But you know, to each their own. And uh, class three e-bike is just like a motorcycle with an electric motor. It's got a throttle. You don't need to. Uh, do anything you just lean back and and drive too fast so the class three e-bikes are the ones where the kids get in the most trouble um i'm not sure what a class two is but somewhere in between i suppose anyway <laughs> one of the one of the mentioned one of the problems i mentioned is that a class one e-bike a specific brand of class one e-bike can be turned into a 70 mile an hour vehicle by clipping one wire uh, which is, again, uh, one of the helpful hints being circulated on TikTok, and kids are picking up on that. So, yeah, th you need to be careful. You're as exposed on a bike as you are and you know, it, on a motorcycle, but you've got at least a less, less speed. Mine not only gives a boost when I'm going at the 18 miles per hour, for example, so it, it is somewhat slower. How do the do they have they upgraded the brakes on these things? Because oh, yeah. seventy miles per hour, that's that's going to need a, quite a bit of braking power. Well, I've got upgraded brakes. I've got the disc brakes on my vehicle uh, on my bike, but I'm not sure what those seventy mile an hour bikes do. My guess is they probably have inadequate brakes because why put adequate brakes on them, right? I don't know. Yeah, Let's check our TikTok channel for with with the wire in place to be limited to twenty miles per hour. So. 
Right. Um, so there's probably got 20 mile an hour brakes with 70 mile an hour yeah, capability. Yeah. That was the thing that stood out to me a lot in the article too, is just the fact that you're shipping a product where there is a known uh, modification that increases the speed of the bicycle from 20 to possibly 70 miles an hour. And the reason there is that is because the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Consumer Product Safety Commission have kind of been batting motorized and micro-mobility vehicles back and forth between them for years now, and neither one really wants to dive in and regulate them. Um, right here is a clear case of one that needs to be regulated. You know, if you're building bikes, e-bikes for on-road use in a country that limits them speed limit wise or, or at least in california and some other places to around 20 miles per hour then you shouldn't be putting these easily defeatable um you know mechanisms in place that could just require a wire clip to make the thing go 70 um because the just like we've mentioned the brakes and other systems on the on the bike aren't aren't really going to be able to take that kind of speed um, not to mention the fact that these are mostly, you know, unlicensed teens who are who are getting in trouble here because they're not old enough to drive a car yet. And they're, you know, a little less risk averse than some of us old folks. Yeah. When there's uh, this horrible service of these e-scooters, when it opened up in, in New York a couple of years ago, it was a bunch of teens who were don't have a driver's license getting on these and they're all driving the wrong way down one-way streets and whatnot i mean i made sure to hit a couple of them with my car um but it's is a horrible thing and I, I just see this with motorized uh bicycles all the time of people just you know going full speed i guess at least 20 miles per hour but um i'll try to wave them over and be like hey if you guys clip that wire you can go faster because i want to thin the herd well, I mean, it, we're keep, I keep hearing at least about, you know, the a lot of the solutions that could be posed for the environment and for, you know, in cities and parking and, you know, but micro mobility replacing cars. And I think that to get to that point, we actually need safety standards around the micro mobility devices as well. If they're burning houses down and if they're uh, able to be modified to reach, you know, unsafe speeds, then, you know, there needs to be someone regulating the industry because right now some of these things are being shipped over from foreign countries that, that you know, Americans aren't getting any real benefit out of the manufacturer for them. Um, but we're getting the, the, the dangers imported to America. So it's, it's something that I think that NHTSA and the Consumer Product Product Safety Commission really, really, really need to look at now, um, both to prevent these safety problems, but also to enable, you know, a, a future with more micro-mobility micro devices, you know, being able to be used on our streets without those risks. Bring back the Segway. No? Okay. No. <laughs> <laughs> you know, whatever happened with those anyway they were supposed to revolutionize the world according to the tech bros they did bro you just didn't see it man it was cool it changed everything everything uh, bro damn it i'm stuck <laughs> out here in the wilderness i never uh, noticed that oh i know i know um one of the favorite things we like to talk about here is called a, a big red button when it comes to autonomous vehicles big red button it's like fred always like hey you're stuck in one of these things or it's driving crazy there should be a big red button to press on it well we found a big red button 
and it's inside a BMW. Uh, where is this uh, another good article from Ars Technica? BMW uses autonomous cars for boring, repetitive tasks. I love this idea. So what they did is they basically programmed these self-driving cars not to see, hey, can you navigate city streets? Can you parallel park? What not? Hey, let's slam on the brakes. Let's go to a certain speed. Crush the brakes. Let's do things over and over again to see how the hardware fails, see if software fails. And they did this on tests that humans after, you know, five or six times would just wouldn't be able to keep matching the same exact inputs and the same exact process over and again because we'd be bored out of our skull. Um, so I think this is a pretty neat thing, but what you see is inside this car that we love is this big red buttons. There's at least two big red buttons. I don't know if they do anything, but God, I love a big red button. July. Sorry. I like the idea that they're actually putting significant, uh, energy into designing tests that are repeatable and will produce accurate results. That's, that's nice. It's novel. Don't know if anybody else is really doing that on, uh, self-driving systems. And they're using it really to test, you know, not not self-driving um, cars, but they're using it to test out their average fleet vehicles again and again and again and again because they they found that test drivers, like Anthony said, can't really replicate those same those same inputs over and over and over again. Something we see in drivers, you know, the people are people get tired and people get, you know, driving's not easy. People get tired after a certain time and after making repetitive actions over and over again for hours. So, um I well, like that's, yeah. That's that's also the problem with artificial intelligence because to to train artificial intelligence, you need to do the same thing over and over again so that it gets used to a pattern. Uh when you're driving the vehicle on the roads, You'll never completely replicate the same situation with respect to all of the inputs and outputs that the car is using. Um, so, you know, I, I don't think that there'll ever be an opportunity to drive your way into safety with or without a test driver when you're talking about artificial intelligence and self-driving vehicles, just as an aside. Uh, what I, I think the thing that we're missing, though, is, guys, I mean, I said it like eight times. They a managed to put a button. big red button. Yeah, exactly. So if they can put a big red button in these. Why can't they put big red buttons in all these EVs? Is it because is it because AVs is because BMW doesn't make an AV? Well, I mean, the big red button needs to be, you know, it, it needs to be thought of as something other than a big red button, I think, because you're going to have people who are incapable of seeing the button incapable of pushing the button riding in the car there needs to be some type of voice command or you know there there probably need to be multiple ways actually to enable the human occupant of an av to um stop the vehicle and in this case they've got a big red button because they're allowing journalists into the vehicle for a spin around the test track and you know they have certain parameters i think one of them was if the vehicle deviates from its course by 59 inches or more it is automatically stopped um and so it gives the people riding in the vehicle if something does go wrong a you know an emergency button which we think is you know critical to um driverless vehicles in the future you know we need a way to stop the vehicle and, 
ultimately without the computer telling us, no, I'm just going to do whatever I want to do with you today. <laughs> well, we need to wait for emergency responders to stop the vehicle too. Whenever it transgresses a boundary that they've put up for, you know, around an accident or a fire scene or whatever the emergency situation might be. I think you're right. I just have the physical big red button and a voice command. If somebody says big red button, the car automatically stops. I mean, that might be too wordy, but I kind of like it because I would just you know, be they, actually, now that I think that they actually could use a ray gun, which, you know, would have a focused electromagnetic <laughs> energy that zaps the car and sends a signal that the damn thing has to stop. I, I think the cops would like to have a ray gun in their pocket too. I think that would be a fun thing for them. <laughs> Welcome to Fred's new podcast, Sci-Fi and You. Every night, every kid from the 1950s dream, ray guns, rocket ships, talking dogs. Uh, let's, uh, you know, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna jump in a little Tesla investigation that will feed right into the, the Tau. So, uh, Tesla, uh, apparently steering doesn't work on 2023 Model 3s and Ys. Uh, NHTSA has opened the Office of Defects Investigation, has opened a preliminary evaluation to determine if there's a problem with the power steering module in these cars. Uh, NHTSA has gotten 12 complaints alleging steering failure, where <laughs> where I, I have to laugh because people are saying, upon starting the vehicle, the steering wheel frequently locks, becomes exceedingly stiff, requiring physical... Uh, requiring significant physical effort to turn rebooting the system that means exiting then re-entering the car can sometimes fix the issue temporarily so think about this your car your car doesn't work and so like hold on i'm gonna leave the car and then i'll go back in it reminds me of this kids in the hall skit where they're trying to start a car and it doesn't start and they're like okay turn the key now no uh now okay let's leave the car jump back in now and they like do everything in the car they wash the car they paint the car and then eventually after trying everything let's turn the seat belts on let's turn the lights on they eventually open the hood and there's a cat in the engine like oh mr whiskers <laughs> they move the cat out and the car starts uh so maybe that could be what's going on with these tesla owners they have a cat in their uh in their frunk uh so <laughs> uh and and people are reporting this with vehicles that are relatively new. I mean, 575 miles. I mean, they're some of them are saying they're driving down the road, and then all of a sudden the the steering wheel gets stiff and they can't turn it. And now these are not physical old school steering wheel physical connection to an axle things. It's all steering by wire where you're turning something that's signaling a, a computer chip to say, "Hey, they turn to starboard. Hey, they turn to port." Uh, I imagine that's how computers talk. Well, we don't have a whole lot of information on the investigation other than that it was opened um, because mainly because a lot of the Tesla investigations proceed in one way. Um, NHTSA sends them an information request and then NHTSA sends more information requests and everything that Tesla submits to the government is hidden behind a wall of confidentiality. So it may be a while before we know anything about this, but it sounds like uh, there is some sort of electronic issue with Tesla power steering in these vehicles. It, even a lot of the times when these fares occur, it says that they're the owners receiving a notification that there's been a power steering issue. So um, hopefully they'll figure it out quick before someone loses steering in a critical situation. And Tesla service sensor centers have been responding with, we would like to cancel your visit. Uh, 
so with this, let's go into the Tao of Fred today, because today we're going back to basics. Fred's going to teach us mm. what the hell's power steering. You've now All entered right. the well, Tao I'll, of I'll, Fred. I'll give a respectful pause here so that you can paste in the uh, the intro. I guess that's probably long enough. I already did, man. Good. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So here we go. Uh, we're going to talk about the power steering. Now, um, Michael, question for you. Love this part of Have the Have you show. ever heard of the rack and pinion steering? Yes. What does that mean? I think that means when you have a, as, as a driver, you have a direct physical co connection between you and your uh, wheels so that you're effectively the only source of control of the steering. Uh, the subordinate clause there, you got it right. I think the rest of it was a, a, a creative miss, but we like that. So, uh <laughs> Rack and pinion steering. So what does what does that mean? Basically, it means that your steering wheel is connected to uh, a geared system or some kind of system that then drives the steering mechanism in the front through a pinion. So there's a pinion, meaning there's a some kind of gear or gear-like device at the end of the steering column shaft that extends into the engine compartment. So when you turn the wheel, that pinion at the end of the at the end of the column is picked up by something that then moves the wheels. Uh, in the case of Tesla and other electric drive cars, what happens is that pinion is actually inserted into a electronic device that senses the motion, the angular motion of the steering wheel, and then sends the signal somewhere else that drives a motor that causes the uh, causes the wheels to turn. Now, in the old days of hydraulic systems, you had uh, some kind of follower system. So the rack, the pinion would turn actually a valve, and the valve would then move the the wheels back and forth. But there was a mechanical connection between that valve and the wheels, so that if the power steering failed you could actually crank the wheel over. It was difficult to do it, but you could crank the wheel and you could retain the ability to steer the car in an emergency when the power steering failed. Um, I've actually experienced this when I was driving a bus back in the old days. So that was kind of fun. Um, I, I hit a policewoman's car, <laughs> as it turns out, but you know she was <laughs> philosophical because her car was over the was over the stop line, and that's why we contacted. So. Uh, she was a, I only took a nick off of her rubber bumper, so all was well. But anyway, uh, I digress, as I often do. So <laughs> in the case of, uh, <laughs> I, I did get the license, so that was good. Um, so where were we? Rack and pinion. Okay, so that's the pinion part of it. Uh, the rack part of it <laughs> is the your mechanism. Opinion. <laughs> that is my opinion. As, uh, and, and you all have pinions of your own, I know. <laughs> So we'll move ahead here with the rack now, which is the <laughs> device that slides laterally back and forth and actually drives the um, the wheels to turn in one direction or another. That's all a mechanical system. So there's actually mechanical force that moves the wheels right and left, and uh, and that's how the car steers. In the case of the Tesla, there is an electric motor that picks up the signal from where the pinion is inserted into an electronic transducer 
And then that electronic signal travels to an electric motor, which has its own interpreter and drive system that uses that signal to then run an electric motor, which is connected through a rubber belt to the actual rack system, which moves the to which then moves the rack back and forth which drives the car. So as you can see, there's lots of parts in there. Lots of things can go wrong. The other thing that's on the pinion is a feedback mechanism. So there's some kind of system in there so that you when when you turn the wheel, you know you've turned the wheel, right? And then if you release the wheel, it moves back to the neutral position. So you've got a, a feedback system in there. Apparently in these tests, something's going wrong in that system and it's it's freezing up so i don't know how deep they go into that but it, it seems like a fundamental problem if the, in fact the steering wheel locks up because it's hard to see how the steering wheel would lock up if it's only going into that electronic device in any event i looked into this a little bit and it turns out that the entire integrity of the tesla steering wheel as of uh, the steering system as of 2021 was dependent upon a fan belt that connects the uh the motor to the rack system uh and so anthony have you ever had to replace a fan belt or the serpentine belt on your car no but i've seen it done seen it done and how long does it take and you know what's your guess on the cost of that uh well the cost of the belt itself or the cost of paying the guy to put the belt in place both oh uh, well the belt itself i think was like 15 20 not yeah. a lot of money the guy installing it and whatnot and telling me i need new undercoating uh priceless priceless Absolutely yeah. priceless we don't need the undercoating but it turns out that if you have a tesla you've got to completely disassemble the entire rack and pinion system in the car <laughs> In order to replace that rubber belt that connects the drive motor to the uh, the rack system, so it's a very complex system, very expensive to maintain, a lot of opportunities for things to go wrong. Yet they say that the power steering is equipped with full redundancy, with separate power feeds. So, what does redundancy mean, Michael? Back to you. What does redundancy mean? Redundancy mm. means putting in place at least two systems uh to prevent to help things out if there's a failure in the first system right. well, that's, uh, that's good. more like you a were... lawyer answer come on yeah he no, was but making he, it up he wins he gets credit for that um <sighs> the problem with the the claims of full redundancy in the tesla is that it's kind of like their claim for full self-driving <laughs> doesn't really exist so what they've done is they put uh, multiple cables between the battery and the drive motor and saying that that's full redundancy well actually full redundancy would mean you've got a separate path for the signals or actually got separate signals coming off the uh the pinion from the steering wheel right and then you've got different processing goes on it goes has to go into a computer somewhere that determines what that signal means in terms of the amount of steering you're going to put in uh then you've got to have redundant systems to steer the car none of that is of course evident in the uh in the tesla and a fine engineering point here that isn't kind of interesting if you measure something once you know what the value is of that measurement when you measure something twice you no longer know what the value is because the two measurements are going to be different 
So a, a, a full redundant system has to take different inputs, run them through different uh, algorithms to determine what that means in terms of steering, and then put them through different steering systems so that if one fails, uh, the other one will take over, just as Michael said. None of that's evident in the in a Tesla. None of that's evident in any other self and every other electric drive vehicle uh, that I'm aware of, electric steering drive signal. So they're taking a step back from the redundancy that used to be evident in the hydraulic systems, where a manual override just by cranking the steering wheel would actually allow you to steer the car in an emergency. That's completely lacking in these uh, vehicles, which are pretty common now that have electric drive for their steering so they're steering. So they're actually interesting. Once again, they're taking a step back from safety in order to look at putting advanced technology into these vehicles. So that's not a good idea. Um, no. True redundancy. Get- true redundancy would include parallel sensors, independent software processing. And by the way, that independent processing would typically rely on different algorithms because you can have a systematic failure or systemic failure if you use the same algorithm to transfer one signal into a driving signal versus the other one right if you have the same software you can have the same mistake in both software so it's much better to have different software that does that job of course the problem is at the end of that you might have a different signal coming out of those two systems so you've got to have a third system that resolves the differences between those two signals kind of a supervisory controller that says, well, one's wrong and one's right, so I'm going to take the correct signal versus the wrong signal. It, it gets really complex. It does. Do you need, a, do you need a, a redundant supervisory controller as well? Well, yeah, you can do that. that's how the uh, Teamsters you know, started. There's a, uh, I'm familiar with one jet engine control system that was called uh, a quad redundant system. So it, it relied on four inputs and four parallel processing systems and the reason it used four is because if one fails, then you've still got three. So you've got a tiebreaker between the three. <laughs> and, and so the very, so they, they have to sort between the various inputs to determine what is the right amount of fuel to put in the, uh, the gas turbine. And you- of course, if they put the wrong amount of fuel in the gas turbine, uh, a lot of things can happen, almost all of them bad. So yeah, for a, a real critical system, you need to go to some pretty sophisticated, hardware and software designs to actually implement full redundancy to get the benefits that Michael was talking about of one system taking over if another system should fail. And then the more redundancy you put into a vehicle in terms of hardware and software, does that present more attack service surfaces for, you know, cyber issues to occur with? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Inevitably, because the more, the more software you put into it and the more different components you put into it, uh, the more, a th- expansion of the attack surface that uh, is inherent in that design. It almost sounds like you're saying that, you know, in order to achieve this safety, we also have to have, you know, concurrent, really strong cybersecurity protections. Yes. Or you can just say, well, I don't care about that. I don't care about stepping back from the previous safer systems. And I'll just go ahead and put this whiz bang motor in there because people like whiz bang. Oh, I do um, love a good whiz bang. Mm, whiz bangs are good. Mm. Whiz bangs are good. So, so, wait, so wait. that's so that you know that's really all we've got to say about that today. We don't know exactly <laughs> what's going on 
with the with the Tesla. But there's a lot of opportunities for failure within the electric drives, uh, electric power steering systems. It's a step back from the safety that was inherent in the previous hydraulic power steering systems. And uh, it's a fun thing to advertise. So, but drive by wire, it's not new. Like Airbus has been doing this since the 80s. They're, all of their planes are drive fly by wire. Sure. They've had this system. Now, the 80s was a couple weeks ago. Uh, so they've got that. Their systems by regulation and by engineers not being maniacs are uh, fully redundant. They have to run a whole bunch of tests to say, hey, all these things break and whatnot. We can still fly the plane and still control the plane. So... I imagine in an automobile, the system doesn't need to be as complex as an airplane, but on a fundamental basic engineering level, it's the same thing that was designed in the 1980s. True or false? Uh, true and false. I'll so, take, I'll accept true as an answer. I will not accept false. You're right. Okay. okay why well, is it false? You got to realize in an airplane, okay, they, they do have sophisticated safety design. So if they have redundant controls for, we'll say, an elevator, not only do they have full redundancy, but they run the wires through separate separate. channels in the airplane. Right. In different in different locations in case, you know, you get an impact in one place, you've still got the control systems running through running through another channel. You won't find any of that in in uh, cars. Why not? And um, wires aren't that expensive. Wires aren't that expensive. Everything's expensive. When you produce <laughs> millions of cars, Everything's expensive. There is incredible cost pressure on the engineers to make things as simple as possible and and as uh, as as cheap as possible. So I know of one vehicle, in my experience, that had a vibration problem at a certain speed, and all of a sudden the side panel would start to boom on the side of the car at a certain speed. So they did a lot of extensive tests, figured out what the frequency was that was causing that, and. Uh, decided to fix it the engineer was given a budget of exactly one dollar for the engineering fix that was allowed to fix this particular noise problem gorilla tape sorry did they use gorilla tape is that how they fixed it i i'm not sure how they did it but you know when you've only got a dollar to spend you don't have an awful lot of options and how to do that if you've got a dollar to spend, I've got an option for you. Go to autosafety.org, multiply it by 10, and make a donation. Sure, you can multiply it by 5, but 10 is 10 times as good. Multiply it by 100. Oh, my God. And Michael will send you an autographed copy of Gorilla Tape. It's his independent uh, freeform jazz album. It's 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 kind of like John Cage's 314. Um, oh, Anthony, no, you're, so, you're so good, Anthony. I love that. <laughs> uh, okay, so that's a uh, power steering Tesla and why your cars will never be as safe as an airplane made by the French. Uh, let's uh, let's go into recall roundup. How's that sound? That sounds, sounds good. good. <laughs> okay. Uh, where is my recall roundup? Okay, so here's one that always scares us. General Motors, Takata, and airbags, right? So General Motors is recalling certain 2013 Buick Verano, Chevrolet Camaros, Sonic, and Volt vehicles. I've never heard of a Chevy Sonic or a Buick Verano, so they must be top sellers. Uh, the driver's side airbag inflator may explode during deployment due to manufacturing defect. Oh, this sounds delicious. What is this? Is this 
This is not the Takata issue. So, uh, so this is Takata. Um, uh, how we? There are three, basically three giant buckets of airbag issues that we'll, you'll hear us discuss. One is the biggest, the Takata recall that started around 2015 and has affected you know 80 million or so vehicles. Those vehicles are still being repaired and replaced. The other one we've discussed uh, in recently, in fact, probably two months ago, was. The Art Automotive, this is the American right. manufacturer in Tennessee who is building bags that, that that General Motors has recalled and that other manufacturers have recalled in small batches, but that hasn't been recalled as a whole the way the Takatas were. Um, this There's a, also a kind of a third category of Takata bags that were cited as a potential concern back when the Takata recall was ongoing, um, and, and at least in its beginnings. This is a group of airbags that have been desiccated. So basically it means that the airbags that are pro that are a real problem and that have been recalled for Takata were not desiccated, which means they don't have, basically if you think about the way I think about it, when you open a pack of beef jerky, there's sometimes a little pack of silica gel or something in there that's non-edible that's intended to take the moisture to prevent moisture from building up in your beef jerky. Um, it's very similar in the airbag. It prevents you know the, the degradation due to humidity over time is essentially what a desiccant does. Um, and it's been maintained by the manufacturers that because of the desiccant, these airbags aren't going to be subject to the same type of failure as the other Takata bags because there's a basically a means to prevent them from degrading over time and from the inflator, the um, ammonium nitrate pellets in them that prevents them from becoming degraded to a point where they will explode um, in a uh, in a deployment. So. NHTSA was supposed to study this issue. They're they're supposedly tracking it long term. Um, and in this case, General Motors is saying, well, we've got an inflator explosion in Brazil in one of these bags, but it's a manufacturing defect. It's from a batch of bags that were produced that were out of spec or, you know, whatever the excuse is. But this isn't evidence that there's, you know, the same defect that happened at Dakota. We don't need to recall all 50 million bags right now. There's just no evidence that that's happening. That's basically their argument. You know, we'd like to see a little more than a few sentences in a, um, Five, part 573 recall determination. We think that, you know, the public deserves to know a little more about what risks might be might be going on in these desiccated bags. Well, I mean, I guess one in doubt, blame Brazil. Huh. The next one we have, uh, this title is as adorable to me as Michael saying July. This is labeled front door latch Paul may crack. <laughs> I don't know what a Paul is. It sounds adorable. Uh, an all-notch door can open while driving, increasing the risk of injury. Not adorable. Ford Motor Company, potentially 112,000 plus vehicles recalling certain 2014 to 2016 Transit Connect vehicles. The front door latch Paul may crack and prevent the door from latching. Okay, tell, tell me what the hell is a Paul? A Paul, uh, do you know what a ratchet mechanism is? Yes. You know, there's a little thing in there that goes click, 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 and yes. steps down. That's the Paul. 
the little oh. <clears throat> the little widget that falls into the crevice to keep the ratchet from reversing. Can I hear Michael say the word Paul? Paul. <laughs> yeah, not as good as, as July. <laughs> uh okay, so I guess that's what's breaking and um and and causing the doors to pop open. Yeah, and it looks like cons- it's it's not a complete failure. So it's, when when this happens to your vehicle, it looks like some consumers are able to get their doors shut or get in the car and have to shut it a couple of times and it catches. But functionally, at some point, the 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 Paul could release. It, it looks like it could release even while you're driving. This failure could occur. So it's definitely something everybody needs to get fixed quick. Okay. Um, I was and- no. On a side, uh, I think I've mentioned this before, but I once had uh, was driving Joan Claver to a restaurant, and in the seatbelt uh, latch mechanism, there's also a pawl that drops into place, and that's why the seatbelt doesn't release. It jammed. I couldn't get her out of the damn car. I'm banging away on it. <laughs> She's laughing. It must have taken uh, you know a minute and a half to finally somehow figure out how to get her out of the car. It was it was interesting, uh, interesting and ironic. And <laughs> if you like this uh, this story, listen to Fred's other podcast, Fred's Dating Tips. Ah, <laughs> 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 uh, okay. Last one we're gonna do. We're gonna wrap up. This is a uh, one I don't think we covered on last week, but it's my favorite thing. Uh, Jaguar 2019. This is three thousand plus 2019 Jaguar XEs. A concern has been identified on 19 model year Jaguar XE vehicles with rear camera view and navigation pro specified. Uh, basically, rear camera no good. Yeah, well, <laughs> I mean, we see this over and over again, and this is one of the common reasons we see for it. it's because they're putting the wires in the wrong spot that run to the rear camera. So would it be cheaper if they ran redundant wires? So if one set of wires failed, the other side would take over. No. Why? That wouldn't be cheaper than doing a recall? Would it be cheaper? Would it be safer? Yes. Would it be cheaper? No. Would it be cheaper than doing a recall? Because I imagine a recall costs more. It would probably end up ultimately being cheaper than a recall. I Thank would, I would you say very that. much. Yeah, but uh, you know, what would be even cheaper is making sure that you run wires through spots that aren't going to be affected by people opening and closing a trunk, which is obviously there on the vehicle. Well, I, it's a trunk slash wire stripper. I mean, what do you want? It's a multifunction tool. Mm-hmm. All right. Who would ever expect that somebody's going to open and close the trunk? I mean, after yeah. all. I mean, it's a Jaguar. Like no one buys it for the trunk. Oh, right, you're not go- you're not getting groceries into your Jaguar. Yeah, you buy a, a Jaguar because you imagine that. Oh, I'm buying a 1940 something Jaguar. Look really cool, and it's got that shade of Jaguar green. Not realizing, yeah. oh my god, it's 2023. Why am I buying this expensive? Hey, and with that, that's a uh, that's our time, folks. Um, wow. Thanks for listening. You know, I helped uh, I helped Marion Barry restart his green Jaguar back in the back in the late '90s when he broke down on Capitol Hill. Hey, if you if you want to hear the rest of that story and how long Michael was in rehab for, uh, we need five <laughs> new monthly donors. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, hey, Michael, yeah. <laughs> Michael, what's that device? The collapsible device that people use to keep the rain off their heads. What, what do you call that? We call that an umbrella. There you That's go. That's pretty good. That was that was normal English. I apologize to our piggly wiggly shopping friends. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, and hey, uh, thanks for listening. Thanks for subscribing. Most importantly, thanks for giving a five star rating in Apple's iTunes app. If you use that app, Whoa. it's the only app that I know that allows you to do ratings. Hey, if you're listening to this on our YouTube channel, click the thumbs up. I think it's the thumbs up or the star button, whatever it is. If you're listening to this on our TikTok channel, uh, thanks for setting up our TikTok channel. <laughs> like that's all <laughs> I can say. Like that's great. Um, we should start a TikTok channel, but it's like how to undo everything the kids tell you how to do in TikTok. That's true. Right. And if you put us on TikTok, cut a wire and we'll go even faster. <laughs> Thanks, everyone. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Bye, y'all. <sighs> All right. I hope that uh, one recorded. Oh, it better be recorded. <laughs> For more information, visit www.autosafety.org.